1: I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined momentarily by Professor Amy Wax of the University of Pennsylvania Law School. As I tease to Amy, she is one of the leading thought criminals in the United States of America. We will find out why, more importantly, the horrific, horrific ordeal that she is going through cuts to the very core of what academic freedom and by extension really just liberalism is or at least is supposed to be in the American Academy and American society at large. So we're going to be real quick here in the intro before we bring on Amy I got back from CPAC. So I was at CPAC for a couple of days. I spoke on a panel Friday afternoon. The topic of my panel primarily pertained to the state of Israel's continually roiling and deeply contentious debate over the Netanyahu government's proposals to reform the judiciary. We have discussed that a little bit on this show. No need to rehash the arguments there. What I want to focus on instead, just real brief here from my time at CPAC, is kind of just what I saw as far as kind of just trying to put my thumb on the pulse of the movement as we head into another presidential primary season and ultimately 2024. So I think, to put it mildly, CPAC was definitely a Trump fest. It was a MAGA fest, and there's just no ifs, ands, or buts around that. If you look at the straw poll, which CPAC does every year for presidential contenders, Donald Trump won it by a very large margin. It is worth noting that the only other candidates who have formally declared for 2024 who spoke there were Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy, neither of whom got a particularly robust crowd or a particularly robust applause lines. I'm actually reliable not there, but I'm reliably informed that people actually started trickling out of Vivek's speech towards the end of it, so make of that... What you will, but you know I walked by before Trump's speech outside the hall and just the throngs of people there and kind of the you know uh Trump one gear or you know f joe biden i I mean all of kind of the regalia, obviously the maga hats are ubiquitous there in that convention hall, so it really was kind of a pee to the forty fifth president of the United States. The obvious question, especially when you consider the fact that Very few of the other candidates or prospective candidates who are talked about as being serious contenders in this race. Very few of them chose to participate in this CPAC. So Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, gave a speech. But I honestly don't know who else did. So Governor DeSantis did not. He instead spoke at various places in Florida, Texas, and California as part of his book Roadshow. And it really was kind of just a Trump fest. But two things to bear in mind. The attendance at CPAC was simply down this year. It was unambiguously down compared to prior years. Hard to say exactly why that is, but I mean, one clear place to speculate as to the possible reason for that is this feud that is going on in the backdrop in the conservative movement that President Trump has picked against Governor DeSantis. And that is just at least one possible reason as to why attendance dropped this year. And if you bear... That attendance drop in mind with just the level of intense fervor and enthusiasm that I saw there from Trump's hardest core supporters. You know, I I kind of arrive at a similar place when it comes to 2024, which is. Not that different than 2016 insofar as President Trump has his truly, truly hardcore, you know, it's not, it's the opposite of never Trump. It's the only Trump, the only Trump contingent. Those folks who will be with him literally, effectively, no matter what he says or no matter what he does. And that is a significant portion of the Republican base is not a majority, but... It's possible that it's a plurality. I mean, it is probably. If I had to estimate it, the, I've I've chatted with a number of friends about this pollsters. It, it, most people think it's probably twenty five to thirty five percent. That's normally kind of the range that I see, and that was disproportionately the folks who were there at CPAC. So you know whether. The CPAC straw poll will be pressing for 2024 is obviously anyone's guess. It is worth bearing in mind that in 2016 at CPAC, while the presidential primary was kind of well underway, if I'm not mistaken, I think Senator Ted Cruz of Texas actually won that presidential primary straw poll at CPAC. I think Senator Marco Rubio of Florida finished second and Donald Trump, I believe, was a somewhat distant third if if I have the numbers correctly there. You know, back in the day, back when CPAC, you know, in the pre-Trump era was more dominated by kind of libertarian activist types. It seemed like Ron Paul was actually winning the straw poll almost every year. Rand Paul historically did quite well then after Ron's political career kind of faded. But it was very interesting to see. And, you know, uh, look, anyone who steps into this race to challenge former President Trump, both those who have declared and those who we anticipate are likely to declare are going to have definitely, definitely a real challenge because that only Trump base, we can debate what the actual percentage is, and it's effectively impossible to tell, but that only Trump base. Is definitely still plugged in and they are definitely still activated. So, just some quick thoughts there from CPAP. But without further ado, we want to take it to a quick commercial break. We are going to be joined momentarily by the great Amy Wax, professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Man, she has a hell of a story to tell. I really hope you guys stick around to hear it. It is deeply, deeply, deeply distressing stuff. So, stay with us. We'll be right back with Professor Amy Wax. Welcome back. As promised, we are joined this week by one of America's leading thought criminals. I think it's a, probably a cancelable, cancelable offense for me to even host her on this podcast, but she is also a friend, and I'm proud to call her a friend, in fact, and that is the Robert Muntime Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, Cary School of Law. That is Professor Amy Wax. So, Professor, thank you so much for joining us this week.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So, let's, I guess, start... We, we're going to go deep on, on your current trials and tribulations pertaining to what is happening there. The uh, dean of the law school is effectively trying to strip you of your tenure, faculty. And it's just a horrific, horrific blight on all things pertaining to academic freedom and due process and the total travesty. But before we get to that, for folks who are less familiar with you, why are you such a thought criminal? Why did I introduce you as such to the audience? and that's obviously not me speaking. I'm I'm being cheeky, of course. but what have you said over over the over the years, uh, especially over the past five, ten years or so that has led large swaths of the woke left to hate you this much?
2: Well, I mean, on some level, I find it mystifying because uh, I haven't really changed my views or my positions on most things. I think it's the academic world that has drifted, drifted decisively to the uh, far, far left. I don't like the word extreme because that's a lefty term, so I'll just say far, far, and adopted this uh, catechism called wokeness, which uh, to me just is akin to a religion, it's a creed Uh, It's a creed that stands in opposition to actual facts on the ground, Uh, so that's part of the problem, being that I tend to be empirically oriented. Uh, But I would say that I am a dissident from the creed of wokeness, and if you wanted to summarize wokeness, uh, it's a view of the world that sees everyone divided into the category of oppressor or oppressed. um, That uh views the west and american traditions and values and society as irredeemably racist and requiring uh demolition and and recreation from the bottom up uh, that dwells on the evils of uh, our democracy and our system uh, and that accords special status to um, oppressed minorities and especially blacks Um, and then finally attributes all disparities uh, in between groups to this nefarious force of racism Uh, we could talk a little more about some of the commitments of wokeism but those are essentially the essence of uh, what is believed and the key is here that the woke forces have taken over the university and they do not tolerate dissent they are uh, extremely wary of anyone who questions any of these tenets and who points to facts on the ground that, uh, or ways of interpreting them that are inconsistent and sees those as a threat um, to their hegemony and control and also to these poor oppressed groups who are of course of paramount importance now. Um, cosseting them and pleasing them and protecting them is the top priority in academia, not the traditional goals of truth-seeking and knowledge creation and the like. So I've spoken out against that as well. Um, Essentially, I'm one of the few cuckoos in the nest uh, remaining in academia uh, and they would love to get rid of me.
1: Yeah, and it really is that simple. And just trying to kind of tee it up for the audience who may be paying slightly less attention to the details of this, I I can roughly pinpoint, I guess... Three things, roughly speaking, that you have said or written that I guess has triggered the University of Pennsylvania School of Law Administration. And uh, this is where I want you to to correct me if I'm wrong. But the the first thing was this uh, somewhat infamous uh, Philadelphia Inquirer op-ed where you had the temerity, Professor Wax, you had the temerity to speak of bourgeois values. What a horrific concept. So that was 2017, if I'm not mistaken. And then you had some comments at the first National Conservatism Conference in Washington, D.C. in 2019. I was actually an attendee at that conference. And those comments were pertaining to immigration. And then you had some comments maybe a little over a year ago when you were on Glenn Lowry's show, I think pertaining to Asian immigration to the U.S. in particular. At least when I'm trying to view this as a somewhat non-biased person from the outside, is it fair to say that those are the three things that have really kind of accelerated this administrative jihad against your tenureship?
2: Yes, I mean, they cite, there's a 50 count indictment against me. I mean, they cite all sorts of snippets and remarks and things that I've said all ripped uh, audaciously out of context. What I said at the conservatism convention, what they claim I said, bears no resemblance to the points I was trying to make. Uh, They've taken the account of it from Vox and the New York Times. and never bothered to go back to my actual remarks, of course, that would be too much much of a burden on them. What I said about Asian Americans is is misrepresented and distorted willfully. Uh, I think your, your account is accurate and that what triggered it is this very anodyne piece that I did in the local paper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, praising bourgeois values and pointing out with a co-author, Larry Alexander, that to achieve success in our society, Um, certain values, uh, certain practices work best uh, and that not all cultures and not all cultural practices are equal in equipping people to live successfully in our society. That seems to me to be so uh, abundantly obvious and really uh, non-controversial, it would be non-controversial you know 10 years ago or 15 years ago um, but now it's become contested. When I said those things it triggered a number of people and as is typical in the current age, they started trolling me on the internet looking for other offenses, other sins, other things that I've said that were politically incorrect uh, and started cataloging them. The protests and the petitions pile on and my dean who is really just maybe the worst dean in America at any law school Uh, who initially stood up to the students and said, well, it's her opinion, she gets to express her opinion, which, of course, is completely consistent with academic free expression values that Penn purports to uh, embrace. Uh, He quickly turned coat when the pressure built and decided that he needed to do something, uh, namely filing a formal complaint against me and triggering these procedures, which are... To call them Orwellian really just doesn't capture it. Uh, You know, Penn has all of these ways in which they can persecute you and prosecute you, even if you've really done nothing wrong, which I contend I have done uh, or not done. All I've really done is to express opinions that people don't like and don't approve of. Uh, This gets transmogrified in the current age into hurting students upsetting them psychologically damaging them there is this kind of cynical move to take the expression of opinion and turn it into some kind of harm some kind of harmful behavior and that is the trick uh that they are trying to perform to uh get the faculty senate to impose major sanctions on me it's really my dean who is spearheading it uh, and he is spending millions of dollars of Penn's money employing an outside law firm to prosecute mm-hmm. this case against me. I mean, this just shows you how passive the trustees and the donors. Of these
1: <laughs> yeah, I was going to start to cut you off, but isn't is that like a breach of some sort of fiduciary duty if you're sitting on the board to spend this much money? I don't, I don't really know exactly how the law in that area works, but that itself seems like it would potentially be violative of some duty of some sort. I'm not positive.
2: Well, I'm not sure it's a legal infraction or not, because the law surrounding private universities like the University of Pennsylvania is very permissive. Now, the irony here, of course, is that they get many, many tens of millions, hundreds of millions of federal dollars. But according to the law, that doesn't turn them into public uh, universities, uh, that's that's a problem. But no, I think what it reveals is that the trustees and the people who are supposed to exercise oversight over these institutions and the way they spend their money, uh, they just aren't paying attention or maybe they just don't care. Or the final possibility is they don't really understand and believe in academic freedom. Right. They, I think, see these institutions as kind of gatekeepers to the good life. Uh, They're completely indifferent to what is being taught and peddled, the propaganda that is being promulgated in these places and the influence they have on young minds, uh, or they, you know, kind of superficially believe in a lot of the stuff that's being peddled. I have no idea. It's fashionable to be a lefty, as you know, if you're upper middle class. So this is all superficial fad and fashion. But the bottom line is, it is resulting in the wholesale destruction of any ethos of intellectual integrity and academic freedom in our best universities. Certainly in the case of mine, uh, they are pursuing a course that, if they succeed, uh, will effectively destroy um, academic freedom of thought as a fundamental in our best universities. Hey, and the, they will be uh, prosecuting uh, me for my opinions, bottom line.
1: Right, exactly. And, and for those who are not lawyers or are not necessarily in this world that Amy and I are in, the University of Pennsylvania being an Ivy League school is, is a top 10 law school every single year. I mean, this is one of the nation's most prestigious institutions of legal education. Uh, the longtime listeners of the show will remember last summer when we had on Ilya Shapiro after he himself was canceled by a similarly cowardly dean that, of course, being Bill Trainer at Georgetown University Law Center, and Ilya is now fully out of out of academia Amy, I mean, just going back to the bourgeois values thing for a second here. I mean, to me, another ter- another way of saying bourgeois values is common sense. I mean, it's kind of like the old success sequence of get a job, get married, have kids. If you do so in that order, you have an extremely high likelihood of, of avoiding poverty. So, the the fact that that was what launched this deeply, deeply pernicious assault on academic freedom and an attempt to prosecute you, as you say, for your opinions. The fact that that was really what launched this is just Almost unfathomable. I, I, I mean, to me, it is just an absolute, an absolute shanda, we might say. But why don't you kind of elaborate on the actual kind of state of the proceedings? So when did it start? Kind of where are we now? Kind of walk the audience through a little bit kind of how this process has unfolded and where it currently stands.
2: Well, I will I will give you the heads up uh, in a minute, but I just want to add one comment to what you just said. I think what this proves, you, you talked about the success sequence, uh, which keeps people out of poverty by and large. You know, This is why woke education is bad education. The students have never heard of this. They've been to the best universities. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their education, and they're completely oblivious to any of these opinions that deviate from the far left uh, you know, orthodoxy. Um, they're clueless. So they get a wildly unbalanced, one-sided uh, education. And Penn Law, uh, in its orthodoxy, continues that. And some of the students know it. Some of the students know that they are being cheated. And of course, when they go out to the real, into the real world, uh, they carry these uh, orthodoxies with them to detrimental effect. Um, but anyway, uh, where is the proceeding? Well, um, over a year ago now, the dean filed charges against me. And, you know, uh, to make a very long story short, we've basically been wrangling over uh, how the procedures are going to unfold uh, for that whole period of time. There have been uh, not one, but two investigations into my sins and infractions, uh, interviews with students. I don't know even who the interviews have been with because it's been hidden from me. I have not been allowed to participate. Uh, The first investigator, a professor at Northwestern Law, um, wrote that there was no evidence I was biased against any students, which was one of the charges that the dean uh, made and one of the reasons why he took my first year class away from me. Uh, found no evidence of bias. So of course, we have blind grading at Penn Law. How could I be biased in the way that I grade students? That's impossible. It's irrational. But impossibility and irrationality doesn't mean anything anymore, right? Because, you know, rigor and logic are whiteness, so they disregard all of that stuff. Uh, so that, that was the first investigation. The second investigation claims to have unearthed some statements I made 10, 15 years ago to students or in class, uh, which you know, frankly, I never made. I mean, it's not the sort of thing I would ever say. Uh, I have no memory of it. Um, I have no idea where these remarks come from, and how could I? How could I defend myself for something so remote in time? Uh, the reason that they dredge this stuff up is because my extramural remarks in podcasts and in print. And outside of school, those are protected by traditional um, notions of academic freedom in many statements that have been made by various um, committees and various uh, organizations like the American Association of University Professors. Professors are allowed, like any other citizen, to express their opinion. It's protected speech, whether for public or private universities, at least uh, traditionally. So. Uh, to prosecute me for that stuff is is really dubious. Uh, so they have to get me for alleged remarks that I've made, and you know none of those those remarks are either fabricated or there's nothing wrong with them. For example, they allege that I said to some student at a reception, ten fifteen years ago, oh, uh, well you're a minority in a double Ivy, so you've benefited from affirmative action. Uh, I never would say that to a student. I have no idea who the student is. But even if I said it, I mean, supposedly affirmative action is a wonderful thing. It's absolutely essential to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It should be celebrated. Why is that some kind of insult? It just makes no sense. I mean, it it really is, once again, completely illogical and nonsensical to say that that is some kind of harmful remark, right? Even if I made it,
1: no, it's it's a ridiculous citation. But just to clarify, and then we'll take it to a quick commercial break. Here, we're with Professor Amy Wax of University of Pennsylvania School of Law. But just just to clarify, has Dean Ruger explicitly said that his goal is to get you fired? Or I, I'm not sure how explicit that is. I mean, that, to me, that clearly is the goal. I'm, not, I'm just not sure if they've if they actually said that.
2: Well, he hasn't really said it directly. He had a town hall with students back in 2019, which I knew nothing about, What one of my students recorded, in which he, in his extremely bumbling and inarticulate way, and really, you know, for a law school dean of a top 10 law school, the man really just uh, has a lot of trouble expressing himself. Um, He told the students, well, it does suck that Professor Wax is still a professor here, but, you know, there are procedures, there are processes. We're working on it. We're doing our best without ever actually saying we're doing our best to get her fired. Uh, We're pursuing it. You know, the usual bureaucratic, academic, woke babble jargon. Since then, he's only talked in very general terms about major sanctions. He's seeking major sanctions. That can be anything from a tiny little slap on the wrist to taking away my job, stripping me of tenure. I mean, it it really could be anything. And of course, because it's a disciplinary procedure, it's all very hush-hush, very furtive, very secretive. No one will talk about it. No one will comment on it. Well, why are they doing that? Because they don't want to be criticized. They don't want to be scrutinized, right? They want to be free to do what they want to do. Uh, And I can tell you the procedures in the faculty handbook, which governs this whole case, are so one-sided, they are so stacked in favor of Penn. Penn is essentially the prosecutor, the charger, uh, the judge, the jury, um, the legislature that sets the penalty. I mean, they have total and complete power and discretion uh, to do whatever they want. Now, that doesn't mean that at the end of the day, they'll get away with it, because I do have tenure. That is a form of contract. That contract, you know, it should, it does limit the school and what they can do to me. And part of what's going on here with this case is it's a test case to see and, you know, determine what does tenure really mean? What are the guarantees and what are the safeguards that are built into tenure? Is it a meaningless piece of paper? Or does it really uh, guarantee to faculty certain rights and freedoms and prerogatives, which, by the way, are essential to the conduct of any self-respecting academic institution that is dedicated to the true purposes of academia, which are understanding the world, discovering the truth, generating new knowledge, preserving old knowledge. You know, none of that can be done in an atmosphere of orthodoxy that rules out hypothesis ab initio, right? Before you even get started investigating them, they can't be expressed. Well, that is wokeness. You know, wokeness is at the end of the day, really about race. Everything is caused by racism. No other explanation is allowed. That is the orthodoxy. And anybody who suggests otherwise is you know, can't be a part of this institution. Well, if that's social science, it's not a science.
1: It's not science. It's also not human decency. I mean, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing about what you just accurately described as wokeism as being indicative that this is a good person who espouses these views and who conducts him or herself as such. But I want to touch on what you said there, but we're going to it go to a quick commercial break. First, again, you're listening to Professor Amy Wax of University of Pennsylvania School of Law. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Thank <music> you.
1: So I wanted to elaborate real quick on something that Professor Wax said there, because it is crucially important to understanding this. None of what is happening when we talk about the trials and tribulations of Professor Emmy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania necessarily has to do with the substantive content of her beliefs. And maybe later in the conversation, we will actually get into some of that substance. But none of this stripping away of due process, this attempt to deny you of your longtime tenure position on the law school faculty, none of this is really in its essence, about what you have said. It is about, as you have said multiple times on this show, about academic freedom. It is about the very freedom of speech, liberal values, not kind of right-wing authoritarian reactionary values. This is liberalism. These are liberal values. And this is the key takeaway there. You know, I get asked all the time, like, Josh, what is wokeism? You use this term woke. Well, you know what? I'll tell you exactly what wokeism is. It is race identity politics centric, as as you say, Amy, but at its core, wokeism to me is a total negation of liberalism. It is, it, it is a left-wing form of illiberalism, a, a distinctly leftist kind of mar- race centric conception of, of illiberalism. And if If you espouse that, then you you necessarily reject liberalism. But, you know, I look around here and I ask myself, you know, where are the old school liberals? You know, where is the old school kind of ACLU? Where are you know, where are these old liberal organizations that normally, no matter what their substantive beliefs would be, they would be out there kind of yelling on their rooftops to defend you? And, And the whole thing is just is really is really just so disheartening. And as you said, you are just a canary in a coal mine right now. What's happening to you is very much a test case. There have been some other test cases recently, too. So, you know, I I recently saw you down in Florida with your husband, the esteemed medical school professor, Roger Cohen. And I was at at back of that same organization recently to hear their most recent guest speaker, who was professor or former professor Joshua Katz of Princeton University, who had something very similar happen to him at his own Ivy League school. I already mentioned Daley Shapiro and Georgetown Law. So I guess, Amy, what I would like to ask you next is, What do we do as far as kind of higher education? I I really have no good particular answer to this quandary. There's only so much kind of build your own Hillsdale that we can do. And here in Florida, our governor is trying to do that with New College of Florida a little bit. But is that model sustainable? I'm not sure, honestly.
2: Yes, well, I mean, DeSantis is a hero of mine because uh, he has tried to do something. It turns out to be a lot more difficult than than you would think. Um, I think DeSantis is a hero, first of all, because he understands, he knows what time it is, as the lefties say, and he understands the importance of the education system and the capture of the education system by the far left and how dangerous that is to our society uh, and he knows that this is a, a very dire situation and that something needs to be done about it. And I think he's one of the few people in the Republican Party and on the right that prioritizes this as something that needs addressing and needs immediate action. So, that in itself is extremely valuable. Now, having, having said that, um, you know, it is very difficult to uh, reform and correct institutions that have been culturally captured, so to speak, uh, in a Gramscian way. I'm talking here about Antonio Gramsci, who's this uh, theorist, this uh, left communist theorist who said, what's really important is not class warfare, but cultural warfare. The capture of institutions by a certain set of attitudes and values, and then the perpetuation and inculcation of young people. Of course, education is the ideal capture Uh, institution because then you can sort of multiply and perpetuate your ideas by propagandizing uh, those ideas to young people, which of course is happening, is happening right now. Now, the problem is that our education system is a self governing entity where the people who are already there and we have a lot of tenured radicals, so to speak, are running the place, plus the bureaucracies that they've set up to push diversity, inclusion, and equity, which, of course, are ideological goals of the left. Uh, They are um, self-governing and self-perpetuating. They decide who gets hired, who gets promoted, who gets tenured. Right? And it's very difficult to intervene in that process without people saying, oh, you're destroying the essence of the academy, because the essence of the academy is that you know the people who are there have the wisdom and the expertise to decide who's worthy and who's not worthy. Now, there we have in the higher ed sector uh, private universities and public universities, and both of them pose their own challenges. Um, Public universities are financed by taxpayer money by the state that would seem to give the government some degree of prerogative over how they're run and what is taught uh, and DeSantis, I think, has tried to take advantage of that. But public universities are also governed by the First Amendment of the United States Constitution because they are arms of the government. And so to try and oppose an orthodoxy or a set of values or shut down uh, the teaching of certain ideas um, is very difficult to do. Compatible with the First Amendment, and you have to be clever about it. I think that the way to go, and I would like to see DeSantis move in this direction and other governors as well, uh, is to find ways to bring balance to what students learn and to what uh, students are taught. So they're taught that the West is, um, you know, the worst sinner in the history of mankind and is full of evil and racist. Uh, ideas and institutions, well, they also need to be taught what is effectively banned from uh, the educational sphere, which is that the West has singular, unique, uh, soaring achievements and accomplishments that no other culture uh, in history has uh, manage to to uh, contribute and they need to learn about those contributions and what is unique and wonderful about them. In other words they need to learn the truth which is our sins are generic you know those sins have been committed by all cultures worldwide maybe we do it better and more efficiently because we do everything better and more efficiently yeah, I would say that's true uh, but we have unique um, virtues and unique achievements that students are barely aware of. So try and make sure that they learn about those. Um, that might be one way of doing it. Um, a second uh, mechanism that could be used, and now I'm talking about private universities, which are much much harder to regulate because they're not governed by the First Amendment, is to amend federal law to require private universities that accept federal funds, and practically all of them do. right? So they're supported by taxpayers to honor First Amendment principles in their governance, right? So that would be a very simple uh, addendum to Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which already imposes limitations on what private universities that accept federal funds can do in terms of discrimination uh, and, and uh, equality principles, add a First Amendment uh, clause to that. And that would be a very powerful tool that would help someone like me uh, uh, defend against um, the effort to uh, squelch my dissenting views and, uh, you know, impose an orthodoxy on the university. So there are, you know, there are possibilities here. Um, but ultimately, I'm afraid to say, at the end of the day, it isn't really law or government that is going to solve this problem. It is the culture, and what we need is we need a rebellion. We need a rebellion by parents, by private forces, um, by individuals who believe in free thought, who value dissent, who are old-fashioned liberals, and, you know, uh, sign on to the fundamental tenets of liberalism, which is that an open society and open debate is the best society. It's the most democratic society, and one that achieves the most, right, the most progress in science and in other areas and that this is a precious set of traditions that we should not relinquish uh, easily. Uh, we need a group of people like that to stand up and be counted. Uh, we've seen it in K through 12 education. Chris Rufo, who is uh, really a, a very admirable and effective individual who has led um, pushback in that area, he has shown the way. We have seen parents object to some of the um, CR, the critical race studies teachings that their children have been exposed to, to some of the gender fluidity dogma that their students have been opposed, that their children have been exposed to, to the teaching about sexuality that violates some of their values and their moral commitments. We've seen that rebellion take place in uh, places like Virginia uh, and other Uh, centers and what we need is to extend that rebellion to higher education and you know how that's going to happen I don't know but that is definitely the goal.
1: Well, I love that you mentioned Chris Rufo, who's a friend of mine and is doing just fantastic work on this front and hopefully will be a guest on this show in the, in the not so distant future. I love this idea of kind of statutorily amending or just adding some sort of codicil to Title Six to put in a First Amendment standard, tie it to federal funding. I really love this. So for me, as a kind of a, a crass public policy analogy, my my answer to the Section 230 debate when it comes to the big tech issue is that we should just kind of tie the extra legal immunity to a First Amendment standard. You know, so effectively, it's, it's a quid pro quo. As a condition of kind of receiving this immunity, you have to abide by a First Amendment standard for platform moderation. Very similar to what you're saying. So I think that's very clever and really should not be controversial either. (laughs) I mean, if you force Democrats to take a vote on that, I mean, any Democrat who votes against protecting the First Amendment at private universities, I mean, you know, they're going then down on the ledger. They have a vote for taking a very deeply unpopular proposition. So it's probably probably smart politics too, actually. So Amy, as we kind of get towards the end of our conversation here, I do want to briefly touch on on substance. I would be remiss if I had someone like yourself and did not actually talk about any kind of area of kind of political or cultural concern here. And I guess I would kind of like to hear from you because, um, you know, I think your views on, on immigration have been so uh, distorted, uh, mischaracterized, whatever. Um, what is Amy Wax's stance when it comes to, uh, I'm sure you and I are totally in agreement on illegal immigration. We're probably mostly in agreement on legal immigration, too, to be clear. But uh, what what is your stance on on legal immigration to the U.S.? And how, how do you approach the public policy question?
2: Well, I mean, I would characterize myself as a fairly... Uh, strong restrictionist on immigration. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, not any kind of animosity towards immigrants or any particular immigrants. It's the recognition that uh, our first loyalty and our first concern should be the existing citizens of the United States. I think I place a great deal of importance on the concept of citizenship uh, and on the integrity of borders. Um, The notion of national sovereignty, because I think that so much of the functioning of our government, our solidarity, our willingness to assist one another, our willingness to run a fairly generous welfare state uh with all of the functions that the government performs it it's really important for us to have a sense of belonging and a sense of loyalty to each other and citizenship the elevation of citizenship to a very important status uh, is act- key to those those loyalties and those feelings um, and it's intention with a kind of open borders porous borders internationalist Notion, which is very fashionable and popular now uh, among elites. And on the left, I think that ultimately erodes um, the solidarity that is needed for a nation to succeed. So that is sort of my overall philosophy. Um, Obviously, you know, we're a nation of immigrants. Well, you know, that means we went through periods where we had a lot of people coming in from other places. That was mainly driven by um, our labor market needs, uh, which, you know, were very specific to the time and place that they occurred. I think those eras um, are largely past. We have a country in which uh, a lot of people are out of the workforce, in which we have low workforce participation that's producing all sorts of economic and social ills. We have males uh, who have their lowest workforce participation since the Depression. Um, This is a social problem that we need to address and solve. And, you know, companies need workers, but the way to solve it is not to, you know, just employ and bring in wave after wave of uh, little, low and mid-skilled people, uh, you know, the coolie workers who will uh, feed the maw. No, it's to engage and employ the individuals who are already here Right? that need to be reintegrated into the economy. Um, so I do have a kind of America first way of looking at these problems. The second uh, tenet, really, of my belief system is a very healthy skepticism, I believe it's healthy, towards the whole idea of diversity, um, of ethnic diversity and cultural diversity. Um, a country can tolerate only so much of that, right? uh because in fact diversity has a lot of downsides it reduces social trust Uh, it can result in a kind of anime that uh, we don't really know what our culture is about what its fundamental values and traditions and tenets are so people become very disoriented it leads to balkanization it leads to tribalism and animosity and kind of zero-sum thinking of hostility Uh, between groups, and no amount of jawboning and kind of, you know, DIE programming can really eliminate all of that. Um, So I think having a homogeneous, dominant culture is the best way for our country to go. Until very recently, that was effectively a European... um, Anglo-American culture, because, of course, that is where our system comes from. That is where our founders came from. That is where our basic ideas come from. uh, And that people should, when they come here, recognize that, to a large extent, they need to assimilate to the basics of that dominant culture. That notion of the need for a dominant culture, uh, a dominant sort of heritage culture, uh, has been under attack and I think you know has been very diluted and eroded and it hasn't made our country better so I would like to go back to that and yes that does include uh, a certain degree of ethnic homogeneity absolutely Um, that people call that racist I don't think it is I think it's practical I think it's pragmatic Um, until you know the mid-80s we were uh, overwhelmingly uh, European country in in our origins, Judeo-Christian country in our origins, those facts were unifying facts. Um, As Arthur Schlesinger said, to deviate from that situation is a disunifying force, whether we like it or not. So I would like to keep even legal immigration at fairly low levels. And I would like to to, uh, favor people from cultures like our founding culture, our traditional heritage legacy culture, which is European, uh, and primarily um, Anglo, uh, Northern European, British. Um, And I would like to reduce the number of immigrants from third world cultures uh, because of that cultural distance problem that needs to be negotiated. I understand this is not a fashionable or popular idea, but I think that it has a lot going for it. And let me just say in conclusion that when I talk to students about it, they are open to that idea. Um, they find it uh, interesting and appealing, or at least the ones that haven't been brainwashed um, do. And only but a few decades ago, most people just accepted these precepts as fundamental. If you look at the debate surrounding the 1964 Immigration Act, which opened the country up to higher levels of immigration from all sorts of places, effectively, uh, the legislators from both sides of the aisle were all on the same page. They said, "We are. it is not our purpose and it is not our goal to change the fundamental demographics of this country. And we do not think, and of course they were wrong about this, but we do not think that this law will have that effect. Um, and you know, everybody, nobody questioned that that was a good thing.
1: I mean, there's much of what he just said that strikes me as basic common sense. And Michael Anton is is fond of citing John Jay's Federalist Number Two, which is one of kind of the lesser remembered of the Federalist Papers. But I think it's in the fifth paragraph, if I'm not mistaken. It's it's another fifth or sixth paragraph of the Federalist Number Two. John Jay basically says exactly what you say about kind of the perils of diversity. And, you know, these were men who had just emerged, obviously, from a revolutionary war. They, they understood through blood, sweat, tears, toil, gold, all of it, you know, what it constituted to form a nation. So I would encourage listeners to go ahead and check out John Jay's second Federalist paper there.
2: I'm quite familiar <laughs> with it, talking about one culture, one nation, one sets of values, uh, unifying ideas and traditions, unifying language. Uh, origins ethnic origins um, historical origins he, he talks about all of that and how important that is to uh, the the strength and success of the nation and the future success of
1: right that. exactly and you know one thing that I get asked often because you know my my public stance right now is that I, I probably like you supported a full-on immigration moratorium at least for kind of the short term while we kind of get a handle on what I is would happening be fine with that. Dispensations to be sure, for like very legitimate refugee, very legitimate asylum claims. But it is critical that we define what an actual legitimate asylum claim is, because we've all seen what's happening down at the border with all these faux asylum claims. But yeah, I mean, the baseline for at least the short term, um, I, I'm not going to put a year's number on it because it'll be, be necessarily arbitrary. But we do have to focus on solidarity right now. And when I espouse that view, one of the most common things that I get back from kind of the glib Twitterati is they say, oh, Josh, you're Jewish, you know, how could you pun- Possibly support this, and you know it's true. I mean, all my great grandparents and great all my great grandparents and great great grandparents came to this country in kind of the famous uh, Ellis Island immigration wave from the 1880s to the 1920s. But here's the thing: here's the thing. There was massive immigration for this kind of 40 year period, but. And you can literally go back in the congressional record. My friend and fellow Jew, actually Orthodox Jew, Daniel Horowitz, has, has makes this point over and over again. You can literally read in the congressional record. It's in the early 1920s. It's like 1922 or 1923 under President Warren G. Harding. Congress, after this massive kind of absorption of immigration from largely Central and Eastern Europe... They put a full stop on immigration via voice vote. They didn't even do a roll call vote on it because it was so common sense that after taking in this huge wave of immigrants that you had to kind of cool off, let the assimilation process take place. And, you know, you mentioned the 1960s immigration regime, which we've been living under ever since, with only kind of very slight modifications to that regime. Uh, We've never made any serious attempt to amend the number of legal immigrants who we let in, which is roughly numbered uh, approximately a million, maybe slightly more than that a year. So I do think that we are way, way overdue to make some serious, serious changes to that status quo ante as well. So Professor Wax, we're unfortunately out of time here. But one just final question to you kind of going back to the majority of our conversation on your trials and tribulations for the listeners out there who are sympathetic, properly sympathetic to the woes that are that are suffering to you from this administrative jihad. Where can they find you and how can they help?
2: Well, I'm the easiest person in the world to find. You can uh, Google me, and my pen, uh, my pen email will pop up. But I do have a GoFundMe page, which has been a great source of uh, funds to help me. Uh, you know, continue with the legal advice that I need to, to uh, stay the course here and fight what Penn is doing to me. It's called the Amy Wax Legal Defense Fund, and I welcome all contributions there. Um, lawyer's fees are very, very expensive. Um, so that would uh, definitely be welcome. And I am, I am very easy to find. Uh, and, you know, write uh, Penn, write your um, university, Uh, keep up the pressure, embrace the values of liberalism, stand up and be counted. Uh, Let people know that you do not want to see these changes, this capture of academia, that uh, you think it's a bad thing and threat to the country, which it is. Um, And let your voice be heard also in the K through 12 context, because uh, there's a recent piece of of, uh, research by um, Eric Kaufman and Zach Goldberg that shows that Um, The vast majority of 18 to 20-year-olds have been exposed to, in school, uh, certain fundamental ideas and tenets of critical race theory, of anti-racism, of uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, ideology. Um, They've heard about white privilege, they've heard about uh, the oppression of minorities, they've heard about the need for anti-racism, unconscious bias as a threat, to our country, I mean, all sort of that ideas behind gender fluidity and choice of gender, which is a whole nother ideology that goes along with this. Um, all sorts of notions with no counterweight, with no counter narrative being presented to them. So uh, parents really need to take notice and uh, do something about that, starting with protesting it.
1: Well, a hearty amen to that. So. Professor Amy Wax, thank you so much for joining us this week and really earnestly godspeed in your fight against the woke karate's there at University of Pennsylvania School of Law.
2: Thank you very much. And thank you for having me.
1: So thanks again to Professor Wax for joining us this week. Really just just harrowing, just galling, galling stuff to hear about this, to hear about what the most cowardly dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, this one time shining Ivy League institution, just really awful to hear what Dean Ruger has done in putting Professor Wax just totally through the ringer for some extemporaneous comments given predominantly outside of an academic setting. I mean, I mean, that is one of the more interesting parts about this saga is that if you look at the various data points that penn is prosecuting professor wax for these are not things that she has written in law review articles these are not things that you can dig up on ssrn or anything like that these are things that she said in a philadelphia inquirer op-ed six years ago now with professor larry alexander they is a comment she made about immigration at the 2019 national conservatism conference things like that this is not her academic writing but it doesn't matter it does not matter for academic freedom. It has no bearing on that, where these comments are from, what the original source or providence of them is. Rather, the crucial point is that if you are a tenured faculty member, I, I mean, what is the point of tenure? Like, literally, what is the point of tenure in American higher education unless it exists To protect dissident speech that runs up against the margins of what polite society and what the bipartisan elites in our ruling class deem it acceptable or permissible to say in the proverbial town square. Seriously, what is the point of tenure otherwise? Does tenure exist to kind of blindly recite The various dictates of the woke pablum? Does tenure exist to say that there are 72 genders? Does tenure exist to say that Leah Thomas is a champion for breaking all the NCAA freestyle, breaststroke, whatever records? I mean, no, that is not in today's day and age why tenure exists. Tenure exists to say the things that are difficult to hear. So I think for another example, you know, um, he's not nearly as kind of pugnacious or combative a personality, but I think about another champion of academic freedom, Professor Robbie George at Princeton, who is for many decades now has been a leading prominent social conservative in America, and he is unapologetic about his stances on abortion and same-sex marriage, perhaps in particular. I mean, tenure exists to protect a professor there to be able to give his reasoned opinion about a hot topic that today many people would erroneously say is quote-unquote bigoted, such as opposition to same-sex marriage. It exists in that particular case to protect Professor George's opinion to say it. And that is no less the case here for Professor Wax when it comes to the immigration issue or any of these other issues, affirmative action, any of the other kind of third rail topics that she has seen fit to opine on, whether inside or outside of the academic confines, of a particular vocational setting, including op-eds, external speeches, things like that. And the final thing that I will just note here, because we're already running very long on this episode, Professor Wax and I, I think, are largely in agreement. Maybe there's some narrow overlap, but I mean, certainly we are in overwhelming agreement when it comes to what America's legal regime of immigration going forward should be. And what namely we mean by that is that it should start to be lower, Now here is the key point. For many, many years, I think the standard Republican Party, kind of standard conservative movement stance on immigration was this ridiculously oversimplified dichotomy where, you know, these candidates would go on stage, they would ask their stance on immigration, and they would say, Well, my immigration stance is simple. If it's illegal, it's bad. If it's legal, it's good. I mean, there's so many examples of this. I mean, you can go back to probably the 2012, the 2016 presidential primaries, over and over and over again, we saw this kind of overly simplistic dichotomy that that played out. The point of what Professor Wax is saying here, and what many folks and kind of the so-called new writer saying, you certainly heard Steve Cortez, a former guest on the show, say it when we had him on maybe just a couple months ago, whenever we had Steve on is that the time now is for a pause. It is to focus on cohering and conserving and frankly, just rebuilding. Because America is, it is in rough shape right now. I mean, there's just no way of mincing words. We are hopelessly, hopelessly in, in many ways divided. We always have hope to an extent when it comes to various other things, but sometimes in, in the day-to-day slog out there, you know, there was a lot of rancor, a lot of animosity, you know, frankly, obviously, if you go to a lot of kind of you know inner city places around the country, inner city school districts. I mean, uh, you know, including Miami to an extent. Certainly, in kind of South Texas, Arizona, California. I mean, there was a real kind of assimilation problem when it comes to kind of adopting to and learning. The English language and given that we have had this post 1965 immigration regime for almost 60 years now, 65 being the the major immigration bill that was tweaked numerous times under the Clinton administration and so forth, but really kind of predominantly remains in large part quite similar to what it was when it was passed. You know, it is time now to slow down, and as we discussed with Professor Wax, that's exactly what the Congress did via voice vote. It wasn't—it wasn't even considered controversial enough to take a roll call vote in the Congress. It was literally deemed uncontroversial enough to have a voice vote. That is what happened. In the 1920s, after the unprecedented Ellis Island immigration wave, where on a personal note, as I as I think I said to Professor Wax, that is where all my ancestors came in as well. But that has no bearing whatsoever on what the best public policy is for the United States of America and crucially for the American people, for the American citizens, for the hardworking American taxpayers going forward. So thank you again to Professor Wax for joining. Really just wish her the best of luck in this horrific ordeal that she has been put through. And I hope that you enjoyed listening to our episode with Professor Wax this week. I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you next time.